All right, here we are. The first official coronavirus slash pandemic slash open revolt slash race protest slash you know, what 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 are we missing? Zombie apocalypse? I mean, if 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 you have what my my dear friend Allegra is referring to as your batshit bingo card, that's what she's calling it. Twenty twenty, your batshit bingo card. She's like, who called cannibalism? Uh, evidently, there was a story in the news about a fifty six year old cannibal who uh, did away with a few pizza delivery men. I'm not even kidding. I don't have the story in front of me, but you can Google it because it showed up. So here we are. It is June the 10th. It is two days before a surgery that I have waited almost six years to do. So I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, today is the 78th day that I've been going live on Facebook at 3.30 because a week into coming home, I came home. Let me just give you a little pandemic background. Let's, let's refresh, okay? So in January, I did a, a podcast called Hindsight is So 2020. And I'm super grateful that we posted it to my YouTube channel and you guys have very much embraced it. It's gotten a lot of views. Segment one uh, at last look had almost 5,000 views. I'm super grateful. And what was amazing about Hindsight is So 2020 is that I didn't know in January what we were staring down the barrel of. And yet, if you listened to it, you would have thought that I knew. You would have thought that I knew, but I didn't. But it's because there's just some universal truths. There's just some things. And being 20 years into a new millennium, you know, here we thought like, hey, it's a new decade. It's 2020, you know, New Year's Eve, ball drops. We had all that montage of Barbara Walters saying, this is 2020. We had such high hopes that 2020 was going to be a game changer. It's an election year. Like we knew it was going to be something, you know? And, and, and you know, the, the Gen Zers and millennials, like if you were born in 1999, you're turning 21 this year. Like so much. Who knew? So hindsight is so 2020 was in January. And then right before I caught a plane for Australia, and, and that one is posted on the site as well, or will be. Uh, but by the time you're hearing this, it, it'll be on YouTube. And that one's called, I Love It When a Plan Comes Together. And that was 48 hours before I landed in New Zealand as the world was shutting down. Now, I had uh, booked six weeks, a six-week tour. And I'm going to tell you a little something, boys and girls. If, if you know me by now, or if you're brand new to the Monique world, I jokingly refer to myself as a bruja, you know, witch in Spanish. I, I have intuition. I vibe on things. I hear voices. I don't care if you think I'm bananas. It worked for Joan of Arc. And I've already lived later than 19, so I'm good. So let me just explain how that works. The way my intuition works is that I feel things. I get vibes. Like when you're talking to me, I'll get like a notion, like follow that thread. That's important. Don't lose that. Pay attention. Like a plot point, like you're watching a movie. When people talk to me, I feel what they're saying. I don't so much listen to the words as feel. That's why I always tell people that's the reason why the word ear is in the middle of heart. Pay attention in a whole different way when people are speaking to you. It's not a magic trick. Everybody, I believe, is intuitive. It's just like working out at the gym, though. The more you use it, the stronger your intuition gets. And I very much rely on my intuition. 
I believe in it. I trust it. I use it. So the other way my intuition works is that I get like snapshots, images, like somebody just threw a Polaroid down for a second. And, you know, when I originally signed to go to Australia, New Zealand, and French Polynesia, I was like, wow, I'm going to go to these amazing places. And I'm excited about it, but I was extremely nervous about being gone for six weeks. It's the longest I've ever been gone as a comedian. I went to Korea in the 90s for almost a full month, and that was difficult. But I was in a lousy marriage, and and I knew my dog was cared for by said ex-husband. So being gone a month in the 90s before FaceTime and when you would have to go to the PX and buy a phone card and had X amount of minutes, and then you'd go to, they had these phone rooms on the military bases, and then you would go in, you would wait your turn for a phone, and you would go in, and there'd just be a bunch of guys, like they were, you know, when people are in prison and they sit in the little cubby, there'd just be guys lying in all different forms of repose in these cubbies, and some little snippets of conversation you would overhear, you'd be like, oh, I didn't need to hear that. There was no privacy. You were just in the phone room with your phone card, talking to your, your gal or your guy. And that's what I did. But now I was thinking, okay, what's the worst thing about being gone for six weeks is that the time, the time change, the, you know, mind blown since I started being a comedian of how much more convenient it is to be on the road, how, how things just kind of are truly global. And that when I started comedy and I was a road comic, I would be listening to the radio in Houston. And once you drove past a certain part between Houston and San Antonio, you got a little bit of signal. You'd get some random music. But once you got out past Van Horn, between Van Horn and El Paso, as what I would call the Texas roll, you would hit scan and your radio just goes, and never hits on a station. You would have the Texas roll between Van Horn and El Paso. And that was that in certain parts of the middle of the country. But now with Sirius XM or, and you know, you can hear there, there's continuity of message. And I'm talking about continuity of message, not just in the literal, but in the metaphoric, meaning is that things are not regional. Radio stations have completely changed the way they do business and that there's a lot of stations that you hear in your little hometown in the middle of BFE that are not hometown, that are all coming out of a centralized program to, to save money. It, it, it's, there's some good news and some bad news in that, yeah, you know, localized is expensive. But on the other hand, uh, there was something to be said for having a very specific radio show geared towards, you know, your town. Victoria, Texas, or, you know, Shreveport, Louisiana. And some of those towns still have their own people and their own, you know, jocks. But it's, it's amazing to me how different message is now. And not just radio and not just television and not just picking up the phone and not just FaceTime and not just WhatsApp or Zoom or WebInx. All of these things are just going faster, faster global, faster, everyone. It's crazy. So March 6th, I did a podcast 
called I Love It When a Plan Comes Together. And I prepared to get on a plane and I was going to fly for 12 or 13 hours to Auckland. And then from Auckland, I was going to jump over to a little town called Dunedin in uh, New Zealand on the other side of the world. And I was going to lose a day, which is so peculiar when you fly internationally that you lose a day and gain a day. Like I left Australia the morning of March 17th. I flew for a whole day and I landed earlier in the morning of March 17th. I lived St. Patrick's Day twice. I lived it on an airplane and I lived it in LA and I had weird jet lag. So I fly to New Zealand and in the time that I'm in the air, I knew that things were weird when I got to LAX because not very many people were flying. There were a lot of empty seats. It was actually very comfortable flying to New Zealand because I had space and people were already wearing masks. We were already hearing about Wuhan and, and coronavirus. I mean, it was a story. It was happening. It hadn't been declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. The NBA hadn't stopped its season, but it was big news. It was big news in that before I even left, I was supposed to fly to New Caledonia uh, and to a place called Noumea. And those small islands on the other side of the world were no longer accepting travelers. So here I am, early March, thinking about this six-week tour, and I'm going to circle back to talking about being intuitive. I never saw me being gone for six weeks. I couldn't picture certain things that I knew were on my itinerary, but I couldn't picture that they were going to happen. And to take it to another level, a girlfriend of mine was going to join me because one of the perks of working on cruise ships is that people can join me free of charge. They can share my cabin. And we were so excitedly talking about the trip before COVID. And then she got nervous, but she's like, you know what? I'll risk it. And if we get stuck together in New Zealand, we get stuck. Well, within a week of March 6th, in a few days of me being on the ship, I got the email that all guests were canceled. By the time I hit the second port in New Zealand, the middle of that following week, the World Health Organization had declared it a pandemic. My last live performance on a stage in front of an audience was March 13th. One week later, March 13th, 2020, was my last live performance on a stage in front of an audience. I disembarked Saturday... March 14th, 15th, yeah, March 14th in Sydney, Australia. And in Sydney, people were still pretty normal. You were seeing some masks. But the three days that I was in Sydney, that they weren't sure what they were going to do with me or where they were going to put me. And again, it's such a crazy world that I could just pick up my phone. I'm on the other side of the world, and my T-Mobile works, and I'm calling Los Angeles, and I'm hearing that, and be, you know, no Lakers games. And, and it's so weird to be isolated and hearing different communiques from different parts of the world. I'm watching Australian news. I'm calling friends in LA. Friends of mine from New York are posting stuff on Facebook. Like the whole world, you know, just changed in the week I was on that ship dramatically. And that there's even people that live on ships I don't, you know, some of the nicer ships 
older folks, they're mostly older, I haven't met any younger ones, say, hey, you know what? To have, you know, live-in maid service, food three times a day. Some of these ships have full mini hospitals. I'm a person of a certain age. I'm a person of means. I'm going to live out my years. You know, I'm going to keep a small apartment and I'm going to live on a ship. Well, by the time I got to Sydney, they had not only said nobody's getting back on any ship, but the Queen Mary had also, uh, I think it's the Queen Mary, had also, or maybe Queen Mary too, because the Queen Mary's in Long Beach. Basically, all of the cruise ships had told the people who live on them, you're going to have to figure something out. We're shutting down. So imagine, in effect, these people are getting evicted from what they think is going to be their floating home. So by the time I got to the airport, March 17th, which my, you know, my agent called me at 3 a.m. New Zealand time, uh, Australia time, to say, get to the airport. I was on the last flight. And some of you have heard this story on my Facebook 330s, but it bears repeating. The flight I took went from Sydney to Brisbane. There were no direct flights anymore from Sydney to New York or Sydney to LAX. So Sydney to Brisbane to LAX. The flight was packed. There was not one seat because all of these people that had been displaced from cruise ships had to get home or get to the States or get to their kids' houses. So it's extremely peculiar. And in the time that I've been home, it's 11 weeks at this point, 11 weeks, I committed to doing 40 live shows at 3.30 on Facebook, 40. Because to me, it was biblical. It was sort of like we were in an invisible flood. You know, we were confined, like being on Noah's Ark. 40. And the 40th show was Sunday, May the 3rd. And what's very peculiar to me is, A, how long ago landing seems and how much has happened in those 11 weeks and how different the world is in so many ways. In so many ways. We cannot go back. We cannot unring the bell of knowledge. We will never be the same. When I recorded I Love It When a Plan Comes Together, I was a different girl. And I'm going to call this podcast specifically Crossing the Rubicon. Because what crossing the Rubicon means, it's an expression uh, that was first coined to to, uh, describe Julius Caesar because there's a river that when you cross it in one direction in Italy, you can't go back the other way. It was a river he crossed, I believe, I'm I'm talking off the top of my head, but I believe it was a, a river he crossed on his way to Rome. But that being said, with me, talking off the top of my head and not looking at notes, the expression crossing the Rubicon means you cannot go back. That's it. Bridge burnt, you know, scorched earth, nothing behind you. It's the gumball rally. You know, he gets in the car, grabs the mirror, rips it, throws it over his shoulder. The first rule of Italian driving, what is behind you does not matter. We are different people. I haven't even gotten to the other stuff. I'm still talking COVID. (laughs) There's so much more. But what I want to talk about crossing the Rubicon is that we are different as a society. This lockdown, this pause for the cause, this regroup, this forced 
whatever it is that was not forced by society or politics or aliens. It just was. It was an enormous global social agreement that we all made almost simultaneously that we were going to behave in a specific way for the good of the world. At some point in the, you know, 11 weeks ago, 11 and change, and, and, and it's amazing to me to think how different the world is in three months, three months, we have made global, unspoken agreements to do things as a species. Flights have been shut down. Countries were closed. Masks were mailed and not mailed. Tests were, were used and not used. Some things worked, some things didn't. Evidently, the Fed just started printing money because I don't know where all this money came from that all of a sudden landed in people's, like, who knew? All I can say is trillions of dollars from where? Shrug. And we're doing away with, you know, free hot lunches for children at risk. And yet we can come up with, you know, bailouts. It's a, it's a head scratcher for me. But we have crossed the Rubicon. And I want you to think about speed at which we've crossed it now. And how we are irretrievably on the other side. No different then we could never go back to buying phone cards and talking on a rotary phone connected to a wall. It's all different now. That is the first segment of Crossing the Rubicon, my first post-pandemic podcast. This is the Monique Marvez Show. This is segment two of my first post. It's not really post-pandemic. We're not really past it. We're in the middle of it. So this is the Monique Marvez Show, my first podcast since uh, coronavirus became a thing. It was starting to become a thing when I recorded my last podcast, Hindsight is, uh, oh, um, excuse me, I love it when a plan comes together. Hindsight is so 2020 was January, and thank you for listening, watching, enjoying all that you've done. And, uh, and then we did, um, you know, I, I love it when a plan comes together right before I jumped the plane to New Zealand. And the world shut down, and I barely made it home from Sydney, Australia. So here we are on June the 10th. And I give the date, but it really doesn't matter because I don't do that kind of a show. It's not a news show. When I was on KFI, it was very interesting because there was sort of a philosophy there that, that you had to make people think that they had to listen every day or they missed something, that you, your show had to be warm bread. And to be very honest with you, that's the opposite of comedy. In comedy, they tell you when you're filming a special for Showtime, you know what? Use topics that you think are big, that are going to last a long time. If you're going to talk about the news, it has to be big news. Something, that, a story that's going to linger in the, in the minds and imaginations of people for a long time so that when they watch this special, it doesn't feel dated. And the, and the truth is that for me, it's somewhere in the middle. I'm not trying to be evergreen. I'm not trying to have things sound, you know, foreverness. I just speak about what I think is important. And what is important to me today was important to me at 30 and will probably be important to me at 60. They're just those sort of timeless topics. I don't, I don't really care to put out hot bread every day. 
And to be honest with you, I never really keep up with the news cycle on a day-to-day. There's a whole lot of stories that people come up to me and go, did you hear about the blah, blah? And I'm like, no. And evidently to them, it was a very, very big deal. It wasn't to me. If I saw a headline on my Apple sign-in, and to be very candid, especially when I feel there's a political agenda behind the headline, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle. I don't like agendas. I don't like when I feel that they're trying to lead me to some conclusion rather than just tell me objectively what's going on. I, I'm not a fan of what I call information. It's not information. It's tweaked. It's designed to keep you coming back. to What happened? What happened? What happened? You know, even some of the headlines that I've read recently, uh, one of them, and, and, I, and I, you know, I know you guys are watching, so now you can see the magic behind the machine, which is zero magic. Uh, now, it used to be when I was on the radio, I had stacks of paper around me, but A, um, you know, I don't like wasting paper, and B, I don't need the whole story around me. So here's a headline that I read yesterday. Dr. Fauci says coronavirus turned out to be, in quotes, my worst nightmare and it isn't over. Now, I haven't read the whole article. And it could have even been that they quoted him out of context. It could have been that he said, this was a scenario that could have been my worst nightmare. And, and he could have said, you know, it's getting a lot better, but it's not over. Because I know that the press does that. But the fact that they're saying that, let's be honest, it's been terrible. It is highly transmissible. That's it. A lot of people got it, and a lot of people have passed, and I'm not diminishing that. But if you want to say something is my worst nightmare, my worst nightmare isn't 100,000 or 200,000. It's the plague. It's a third of the planet going down, or even 20%, or even 1%, or even a half a percent. But none of that's occurred. We have a very contagious, potentially deadly disease. I've, I've lived long enough to remember the late 60s when we had the Hong Kong flu, which killed a lot of people. And it was, you know, not good. So let's back up the train and decide, because we get to decide, yes, we have crossed the Rubicon. But we haven't crossed the Rubicon just because. It's because there is a perfect storm right now and that during 9-11, there was no social media. During the Hong Kong flu, there was no cable. The way that things spread now, pun intended, this is absolutely the disease for the times. Think about it. If everything, I mean, how many times have you heard the expression going viral? People want to go viral. They want things to jump and spread. We, we all saw the video of that couple's first dance that broke into, you know, Baby Got Back or whatever, or Letarian Milton or whatever we saw that we loved. My new haircut, which turned into Jersey Shore. You know, we, we've seen these things, and we thought they were hilarious. But think of the world we live in, how fast and global and leveling everything is. And that being said... I've said it before and I'll say it again. Did we conjure this disease? Is it part of the matrix of what we have going on in the world now? And that no one can sit still? No one can put their phone down? Imagine when when I was a kid, there was a whole thing about how you shouldn't put your purse down 
on the baby changing table and the germs and the germs in the bathroom. And every once in a while, you would do a science project in high school about germs at a water fountain and, you know, germs, 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 and whatever else. And we all grew up with that. We all, you know, wash your hands and do that. Look, we know that the world is a dirty place full of fun guys and fun guys. Both you have to watch out for. But that being said, you know, it's part of life. And little by little by little, I've watched our society get to a point where, you know, was it better when kids ate dirt (laughs) and ate mud pies and, and played in, you know, playgrounds with metal monkey bars that would occasionally knock some random kid's teeth out? I don't know. I can't answer that. But on the other hand, we've gotten to the point now where, I mean, I've gotten on planes before COVID where you see parents, they put, you know, plastic liners on the table tray and they wipe the kids' hands and, you know, and kids ride tricycles with helmets. And it's like, I, I don't know that this is good. I don't, I don't know that completely protecting ourselves from everything all the time is the best thing for the species. However, because there is balance, COVID is highly... By the way, I had a COVID test yesterday. Uh, It's a drive-through. It's bizarro. You drive up to a tent and some person coming out in a hazmat suit and and literally it's like a suit with with a plastic shield on their face, leans in your car window and sticks a giant skinny kind of Q-tip way up your nose, almost to your eye socket. And that's a COVID test. And and it's like, it's like something out of the dark ages, except you wouldn't be driving a car. <laughs> but, you know, back in the day when they showed the guys with those long beak masks and the, and the cloaks, I got to be honest, I think I would prefer the long beak mask to the, to the hazmat suit. It's equally sort of charged and scary. And, and even if I got COVID, I don't think I would die of it. I think I would just be very, very sick. But because I'm having surgery Friday, I had no choice but to take this test. And I took it, and I got the results this morning, and I'm totally fine. You know, thank, thank the Lord or whoever you want to thank. If you have an issue with God or Jesus, just add a no. Nobody has an issue with good. So... I'm talking about crossing the Rubicon because there's so many things that we're not going to go back from. We're not going to go back to pre-9-11. We're never going to be able to have our loved ones walk us to the gate or greet us with gifts or it's just, we got used to it. We're, I'm, I'm getting used to the mask to the point where when I come home, sometimes I'll be well into my next task. I'll be slicing vegetables and realize, hey, I still have a mask on. No different than when I wore glasses. Sometimes I'd forget and get in the shower and the water would hit my glasses and I'd be thinking, why can't I see? Well, because you took your contact lenses out and put your glasses on, dummy, and then you got in the shower because you get used to things. We're going to get used to having COVID in our lexicon like we got used to AIDS and the herpes. We got used to it. I remember when, you know, in the early 80s, before AIDS even, and it's so weird because I remember my entire first conversation about AIDS. It was in 1982. There's certain conversations that you just never forget. I remember the first time I heard about crack. I have a friend who was an investigative reporter 
in Miami, Amy Huggins. She was on a show called Montage. She actually won like a local Emmy. But anyway, I have a friend who's a very respected journalist. And in 19, end of 86, she did this whole thing, you know, report on crack. And, I, and she said, you know, it's, it's cheaper than cocaine and it's easily accessible and it's highly addictive and it's going to decimate entire neighborhoods. I remember her telling me, it's gonna, it's gonna des like, like cocaine's a little bit of a rich person's drug. This is like poor man's generic cocaine and more addictive. And I, and I remember thinking, that's horrible. And that was in '86. And I remember in '82, my friend April and I were in what's known as sort of the gay district Montrose of Houston. There was a bar called a biker bar called Mary's. I think it even had a motorcycle hanging from chains from the ceiling. But but anyway, and she's from Boston, and I can't do a Boston accent. I can't do it well. But I remember her saying, "It's it's a wicked bad disease, Monique." <laughs> you know, like, I I can't do Boston. And I said, "What well, what is it?" She said, "And this is, I mean, granted, this is unPC. Don't go march on her house or look her up on my Facebook page. It's 1982. You got to keep things in context." And she said. There's this disease, and they're not sure how people get it, but it's really bad, and it's killing the fags. They're dropping like flies. <laughs> and I was like, what? How, is, how can it be singling out one group of people? How does the disease get one group of people? Well, we found out later, the b- blood transmission, blah, blah, blah. We got it. We figured it out. And a, and a lot of people died, not just homosexuals. A lot of people died. And now we're used to it. And there's a cocktail of drugs that keeps people alive. And now people live with it and they don't die and they don't give it to other people. And it's, a, it's, it's just become mundane. Years and years of rushing waters of fear have smoothed the rocky edges of AIDS. And I think, I think that because things move so much faster and the rushing waters have so much more volume, I think that COVID will be worn down by November, December, when the second wave hits and it's just, you know, old people and people with pre-existing diseases. And I don't mean to sound callous. I'm just saying it freaks me out how when I was a kid, a mass shooting, uh, 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 you know, what happened at Texas, it was a thing. The news cycle would hang on to significant stories for weeks and do follow-up and go back and talk to families. And that hasn't happened you know, what, what do, does anybody even remember Ferguson? Does anybody remember Charlie Hebdo? Does anybody, I mean, I can go on. Stories that were enormous stories. The, te- the Texas country, country concert shooting. Sandy Hook. You know, I, I can go on. But that being said, we, we have to decide what information is of value to us to take in, to sort of, you know, rationally think about and make personal decisions. Yes, we have made a global decision to wear masks. I'm for that. Do I like it? No. Do I feel like a dumbass bank robber? Yeah. Do I like seeing myself in the rearview mirror wearing a mask? No. As soon as I get in my car, if I'm alone, I take the mask off. I don't even like looking at myself in the rear view. There's something disingenuous about covering your face. 
I remember years ago when they would talk about if you went in for a job interview with facial hair or even tinted prescription sunglasses. I used to have a boyfriend that wore very dark tinted prescription sunglasses. He actually had very pretty eyes, but he just thought his glasses made him look cool. They didn't. They made him look shady. (laughs) So, yes, we've agreed. Let's stand apart. Let's wear masks. Let's Purell our hands every 32 seconds. Let's touch things with our elbows. Let's not shake hands when we meet a new person. All right. But is this my worst nightmare? No, Dr. Fauci. Not even close. Not even close. Think about what you're getting worked up about. Think about it. Yes, we have crossed a Rubicon, but I got to tell you, this whole movement after George Floyd's death, to me, is far more compelling and interesting than COVID for a multitude of reasons, of which I'm going to give you the first one. I've been on this planet 57 years. I remember the beginnings, the serious and earnest beginnings of civil rights in the late 60s, just like I remember the Hong Kong flu and the moonshot. I remember, I remember things. And this feels different. We have crossed a Rubicon. This can no longer be what we say in Spanish, si para que te calles, which means, yeah, 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 so you'll shut up. Yeah, 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 sure, yeah, we're going to do that. Which for 50 years, a lot of people in power have just said, yeah, 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 we're going to look into that. Yeah, that was a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, we're going to put a committee together. We have gone way past we're going to put a committee together. We have lost all cabin pressure on, hey, we'll, 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 we'll put that up for discussion. Like, I cannot even believe that there's a, there's a discussion on the floor right now. Lawmakers are deciding a lynching bill. That's a real thing going on right now in real time. And, and, there's a, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't sit here with a bunch of notes. You guys know I speak from the heart. I believe it's Paul Rand is saying, well, it's too broad. It's too broad. You know, a mishandling that results in just injury and bruising shouldn't. No, if, if it's in your heart, if it is in your heart and mind to even think about moving forward with the physical action of a hate crime, I'm sorry. Now, the concern is, that people are going to, my concern, because I'm a rational thinker and I can't believe I'm the first person who thought of it, is like, well, if I'm going to get punished for killing the guy, I might as well kill him. Yeah, there is a concern that some jackass racist idiot would actually think that thought if he's going to get the same time for bruising, choking, harming, hurting an individual is actually lynching him. Yeah, that's, that is a, a concern. It shouldn't be to a rational individual, but... Let's be honest. Anybody who's even considering a lynching isn't rational. And I got to tell you, talking about news stories, I have a neighbor who I've lost an, an enormous amount of respect for. He doesn't know it. Because he asked me if I'd seen the story of how, you know, Mr. Floyd, who I don't know personally, and the police officer, whose name I can't recall because I haven't, I haven't even committed it to memory. Boys and girls, I can remember what I wore the first day of second grade. It's not that I couldn't remember it if I wanted to. I have made it a point 
to not watch one frame of that video or familiarize myself with that story any more than I have to to know what's going on in the world. I know what happened. I know that some out of his mind, because of nothing else, it has to be death by social media, that some out of his mind policeman, knowing that he was being filmed, put his knee on an African-American's neck and left it there for eight minutes while the man was clearly uncomfortable and said, I can't breathe. Like, I don't even get that. I don't need, I don't need to see that. I've gotten the details. I know what happened. Okay? I know what happened. And there's a, a lot of people that are trying to do some sort of crab walk or sideways or backstep into, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. There is no yeah, but. There just isn't anymore. We're out of yeah, buts. We're out of yeah, buts. We finally got over the hill on this. Things are changing. It feels different. We've crossed the Rubicon. That is the end of segment two of my uh, not quite post-pandemic first podcast, Monique Marvez Show. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with part three shortly. This is my first uh, post-the-pandemic becoming a real thing podcast. I hope you enjoyed my first two of 2020, which is Hindsight is So 2020, and I love it when a plan comes together. This one is being uh, dubbed, named, Sobriquet. Uh, I just blanked for a second. It'll come back to me. Crossing the Rubicon. That's what it is. Because I actually looked up Crossing the Rubicon. My, my friend Tony, and when I say t- friend, to be clear, my producer Tony, <laughs> who's standing behind the camera, I looked up crossing the Rubicon because I've heard the expression many times and I knew what it meant and I've used it in, in conversation. But I wanted the specifics and Tony and I got in a conversation in between segments and here it is, Julius Caesar's crossing the Rubicon River in January and I love that somehow the human race has kept such great records that they know that this was January 49 BC. So 50 years roughly you know, so we're, we're talking about 2,070 years ago, 2,070 years ago, uh, uh, it precipitated the Roman Civil War, which ultimately led to Caesar becoming dictator and the rise of the imperial era of Rome. Caesar had been appointed to a governorship over a region that ranged from southern Gaul, which is what we now call France, uh, to Elysium, but not Italy. So... What he basically did was cross a river. He explicitly ordered not to bring his army across the Rubicon River, which was at the time a northern boundary of Italy. Because with the way the Rubicon flows, evidently once you get on one side, you're stuck. You're over there. You're staying. You can't come back. And that's kind of what's happened with us. We have crossed the Rubicon. We're on the other side of civil rights being, you know, a discussion. It's not a discussion. For the first time in my life, I've seen action. And I don't just mean protesting. You know, let's, let's, let's forget looting because that's a very specific conversation. And that's not even the bigger part of the conversation. It's just the more visually intriguing and violent and compelling to the lowest vibration of human nature. Okay? But it's not the majority. It's really not. There's been tons and tons and tons 
of peaceful. I, I, I don't, you don't measure it in tons. We're not weighing the people, but you know what I mean. Enormous amounts of, in fact, the other day, my niece and I were in a hipster neighborhood of L.A. called Silver Lake, and we actually saw people marching very much like you would have seen in New Orleans post-Katrina, something out of the show Treme. They were, they were marching with horns. They were, they were playing music, and it was, it was lively, and it was exuberant, and it didn't feel menacing or negative or mean-spirited. And I say this because I have seen displays in the media and in person, in person, in my neighborhood. To be very clear, I don't think there's any value in negativity. I've never been the person who's against anything. It makes my friends very angry that I won't speak out against. You know, whether you do or don't like something is A, none of my business, or B, whether I do or don't like something, unless we're having a private, intimate conversation which has unspoken agreements that those are the conversations we're going to have. But I don't go bananas against things. And I don't think it serves humanity, specifically our country in these times, to have signs that say, F the police, or kill pigs, or, you know, no. No, this is not, this is not good. It's not good. It's not right. It is a low vibration. It benefits no one. If anything, it makes what you perceive to be intolerant people feel the need to double down and say, no way. And I don't even understand what the expression defund, what does that mean? Just stop paying them? Have volunteer? I mean, I don't even understand. Honestly, to me, that's a ridiculous statement. It's ridiculous. But I understand that for me, thinking that that's ridiculous and stating it out loud publicly, there's going to be people that are upset with me. Because let's face it, everybody knows someone personally who, you know, I heard bananas things. Okay. Uh, on the one hand, there's people that would swear on their children's eyes that, that Trump stole the election with the help of Russia. They just believe that to the core of their being, that the whole thing was just a a, a theft, a farce, a, you know, okay, I, I, I understand. I'm not knocking it. I'm not, I'm not saying you're right or you're wrong because I don't, I'm not going to reveal to you what I think. What I'm saying is I respect that people believe that. I have friends on the other side who couldn't believe that I didn't just go right along with them that, you know, Hillary was a lying Biash, who could have potentially been behind the murder of people, including Vince Foster. And they would say this to me with straight faces and look at me, look me dead in the eye like, how can you not know this? Are you stupid? You're so smart, Monique. How could you, how could you not believe what I believe? Well, the answer is because I am so smart and I'm smart enough to know that if I don't make my own decisions, then I'm not doing the most important of all American things, which is free to think what I want to think, free to believe what I want to believe, separation of church and state. I'm a spiritual person. I've got nothing against God. I say it all the time. But I don't believe that it has a place in legislation, in government. I don't. What I believe is my own business. I understand that there's a lot of people that are still upset 
that we don't have, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance followed by the Lord's Prayer, whatever we used to say when I was a kid, it went from a prayer to a moment of silent meditation. I remember the first sort of famous atheist. Again, I'm not looking at notes. If you're watching me, you can see. I believe her name was Madeline O'Hare. And she was the first sort of famous atheist. I understand that as Americans, we not only have the right to believe what we believe, but as long as it's not mean-spirited, murderous, felonious, whatever word you want to add to that, you're going to be okay. You're going to find your people. But I'm here to tell you that in the last two weeks, I, I, I never even, you know, you would hear rumblings in the past of things like Antifa. And now people talk about Antifa like they're talking about a quarterback being traded. It's like a thing. Like, well, yeah, everybody knows Antifa is going to be first string quarterback for the, you know, for the, the Cowboys whenever we're playing football again. Like, yes, it's an, I know what it means. I'm not stupid. I looked it up. I had heard the words before. I know they've been around since Nazi Germany. I know that some people think that they're super left destabilizing force that just wants anarchy and to destroy the culture. I get that. I'm not even saying you're wrong. But if we're going to call Antifa a terrorist group, how in the heck has the Ku Klux Klan made it to 2020 without being declared a domestic terrorist group they have their only agenda is to spread hatred and intimidate people they're not even pretending it isn't they're just saying as americans we're allowed to hate whoever we want in a group okay but let's be honest things escalate there is no stasis on a physical plane what are the chances you're going to sit around talking about people you hate smoking weed or drinking rye or doing whatever they do in their meetings when they take the hoods off and you're not going to get yourself worked into a lather that eventually is going to translate into some sort of action i, I mean is, is there a possibility there's always a possibility and there's you know there's a possibility that when i'm walking my dog tonight on the roof of this building that i'm going to meet a friendly alien it's always possible i hope for it on most nights <laughs> hasn't happened yet I want to talk about, in this final segment, what needs to happen, which is we're going to go full circle to what I talked about in the first segment, which is communication and how much faster we can talk and how much less real talking we do, how much of it's bullshit and cut and paste and conspiracy and parroting what we heard other people say that we haven't even bothered to vet to see if it's even true. You just heard your brother's cousin's mother-in-law talking about, you know, pallets of bricks in bad neighborhoods or whatever. Let's be honest. When it was harder to talk to people, maybe we thought about what we wanted to say more. Did you remember when you were in junior high, if you're around my age, and a boy would call? And you're, first of all, you had two phones. You had one in the kitchen, and if you were from a good family, and you were a baller, your parents might have had one in their room, and if you were a super baller, you might have had one in the hallway. But usually, you had a phone in the kitchen, on the wall, hanging, and it would ring, and your mother would answer, and she'd say, it's for you. People would yell across the house, and then you would say, who is it? And then your mom would say, it's a boy. And then you would go to the, run to the kitchen, 
and you would get the phone and you would stretch the cord as long as it would go so you could sit on the floor of the dining room up against the wall hoping that people weren't actually eavesdropping and spying on you, which was impossible. It was happening. What did he want? Why did he call? What are you doing? But remember those calls? Remember how precious? Remember how your parents would tell you it's time to hang up? Remember how there was a finite amount of time that you could communicate because of the physical limitations of having a single phone line in your house that you couldn't just infinitely text an emoji and, and, and whatever else you're doing. You couldn't. You had several hours a day that you could talk on the phone if nobody needed the phone. And then your boyfriend would say, you hang up first. And you'd say, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. It would take three minutes to decide who was going to hang up on who because neither one of you wanted to hang up. And you just enjoyed the dead air of having the phone wire between you. And now we can talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime, across the world. And what are we choosing to say? And does it matter? And are we having honest conversations? See, I think that it's not about lots and lots of legislation. I think it's about purposeful and upholdable legislation. I don't think it's about tons and tons of talk. I think it's about two or three meaningful conversations. For instance, I'm just going to say it. I, I'm, I'm not afraid of law enforcement. I'm not against law enforcement. As a road comic, I was helped several times by policemen when I had a flat tire or I almost ran out of gas or I did run out of gas. I was on the road as a comedian for 10 years by myself, just my dog. I don't have a single negative thing to say about law enforcement and how they came to my aid on numerous occasions as somebody with bad credit and bald tires that never had enough cash to fix stuff. It, it worked out. On the other hand, you know, I don't like the idea, and you see it in the movies, and if you see something over and over again, there's a possibility that's based in some sort of truth that there is sort of a feeling of omerta that police just don't talk about what goes on in their squad cars. Look, body cams are body cams, but human beings always figure out a way around things. The battery was dead. It wasn't working. I forgot to put it on. My dog ate my body cam. But, on, you know, is there a place that a policeman could honestly say something about his own mental health? about things he'd seen, about questionable procedures, about bad arrests that could be 100% confidential or somebody wouldn't be labeled a snitch and their life and livelihood instantly put at risk. Is there a place for honest conversation within law enforcement? Because I got news for you. I don't like closed groups. It didn't work for the Catholic Church. Legislation had to be passed so that they couldn't, you know, air quotes, police their own, which was no policing at all. It really just involved a lot of cover-ups and pedophilia. So I agree that there has to be legislation passed when things reach the level of material. But wouldn't it be great if it didn't get to that level because there was a place where an officer could have an honest conversation about a problem before the silence by definition made it escalate? These things aren't happening, but they need to. And remember, 
that protest marches and police forces and law enforcement are made up of individuals that become a group and then there is a mass consciousness. And just because, you know, and I'm not talking about a few bad apples because that's been a quote sort of bandied about. What I'm saying is, is that this country is only as good as the individuals that put together any given group. And maybe as individuals, whether we're in law enforcement or we're in a march or we're in neither, we need to observe our own core values of how we really feel about these things. And if you don't want to have a conversation with another person, have a conversation with yourself and say, you know what, I feel this way, this way, and this way. But I don't even know that people are honest enough to, within themselves to talk about how they feel because there's a difference between culture and inculcation. I am culturally, in many ways, Latina. I have not been inculcated with racism. And I got news for you, boys and girls. That's a dirty little secret. All minorities don't love each other and stick together and sing kumbaya merely by the fact that there are that they are minorities. You know, it's not like gay people and black people and Latino people all get together and say, screw whitey. <laughs> I got news for you. There's plenty of racist Latinos and Asians and black people for that matter. We have to we have to have honest conversations within our own souls about who we are and what we believe and what we want to have happen in this country going forward. And we have to have safe places and safe spaces to have those conversations without judgment and recrimination. And social media is not that place. I see people putting horrific smackdowns on each other every day. It's like WWE of words. It's getting a little ridiculous. But I can tell you this, that negative behavior is about fear and being stuck. You're stuck in a belief that you're not willing to revisit or get rid of. You're stuck in an inculcation. You're afraid of the future. You're afraid of change. You've dug in your heels. And when I say you, I mean rhetorical. I don't mean you guys. You're good people or you wouldn't be drawn. Your vibe creates your tribe. I can tell you something. I'm not stuck and I'm not afraid. And I'm revisiting core beliefs. And I'm acting on new things. I've learned how to Zoom. I've learned how to do Facebook Live. I've built a YouTube channel. I'm not afraid of technology. I'm not afraid of mass communication. I'm not afraid of social media. I understand it wields awesome and terrifyingly fast power. But I'm getting accustomed to the responsibility of wielding said power and said speed. And I think all of us need to think about that. How powerful and fast our words and opinions get out there and become actual things. Let's make good things. Let's make safe places and safe spaces. Let's confront our inner demons and exercise them before we judge other people for not being able to exercise their own. You know how hard it is to change yourself. Think about wanting to quit smoking or lose weight or start exercising regularly. Next time you're quick to think that somebody else is lazy or stupid or unwilling. Maybe it's just a little bit harder for them. If anything, here's what I'm doubling down on. I'm doubling down on compassion. 
I'm putting my foot to the gas pedal of goodness. I'm excited that we're past the time of appeasement and we'll think about that. And we're in a time of speed and action. Let's do things better, faster. Okay? I'm looking forward to coming together with you guys after my surgery, but I'm grateful that I had so much to share to you with you before. Let me know what you think. Love hard, forgive harder, and get as happy as you can as fast as you can.